you would, let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 78, verses 4 through 7. Psalm 78, 4 through 7. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wondrous works that He has done. For He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers, that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. The Word of the Lord. Uh, we've had Hope Sunday, October 22. We've had Reformation Sunday, October 29. And here we are, November 5th. Am I correct? November 5th. And we departed from looking at our discipleship of children to go through those two sermons. But now we return to looking at what does it mean to disciple a child. And so we, start, we started with defining what a covenant child is. And we said a, a covenant child is a child born to a believing parent or to believing parents. And that being born to a believing parent or believing parents sets the child apart from other children not being raised in the church. People who are outside the church, they are, their, kid, their children are not considered set apart. They're not considered holy in the sense that they're being raised in the covenant community in the visible church. And so if you're a child of a believing parent, if you're a parent who has a child and you believe in Jesus Christ, your child is set apart. Your child is has rights and privileges. And one of the rights and privileges of a covenant child is that the parent is to bring the child in front of the congregation for baptism. This set-apartness does not mean, let's be really clear, does not mean the child is, is saved, but it means that they're going to be raised unlike somebody not in the church, in the visible community. They're going to be raised in a place where the Word of God is preached, where the promises of God are always being placed in front of them. They're going to be raised in a place where prayers are going to be offered, invitations are going to be offered, warnings are going to be spoken of, and they are going to be hearing the same things that you hear. Maybe we need to stop and think about that a second. You know, I've, I've had conversations recently, and I know this is true, but... Um, when you hear somebody tell you that they've heard the gospel preached four times in the past year, it really gives me pause. Four times? Friend, listen, you need the gospel 
Every Sunday, every time you walk into the door, adults, I'm talking to adults, I need the gospel every time I walk into the door. I need to hear about Jesus Christ and my dependence on Jesus Christ for my salvation that brings me in the door. And and that same gospel sustains me all the way to the end. Do you understand? I need to depend on Jesus Christ to enter into the kingdom of God, to see the kingdom of God. And then I need the same gospel that will keep me on the up and up and keep me moving and being conformed to him. What happens to Simon Peter along the way? Remember, we talked about this probably a year ago. Here's Simon Peter. He is a person. We know he's a Christian. But what happens to him when it's, when it's close to the time of the cross? He denies that he knows Jesus Christ three times. Why is that? It's because he's dependent on himself. He tells Jesus, I can do all things. I can do it all. I'll go to prison with you. I'll go to death with you. I'll go to the cross with you. Oh, really? Well, he maybe he couldn't. Well, we all know this was not going to be this way. But it's like my son calls me up the other day and he says, Dad, I'm never going to do this again. I said, son, let me, let me put the gospel in there. By God's grace, I'm never going to do this again. Right? Put the gospel in there. We need the gospel. Here's Peter. Peter needs to say, Lord, <laughs> by your grace, I'll go to prison with you. You see. We need the gospel. We need the gospel to come into the kingdom of God. And we need the gospel to be sustained all the way through as we enter into glory. Our covenant children need to be evangelized. We need to be evangelized. And moms and dads, you need to be evangelists. Today, many of our parents are bringing their children for the waters of baptism. And they do this in obedience to the Lord. They stand up. They give the four vows. They say, yes, 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 yes. That's four times. And then they walk away only not to evangelize their children. Maybe I'm talking to you. Maybe you don't know exactly what to do. Maybe you don't know exactly how to do it. Maybe you're overwhelmed. Well, maybe we just need to study this for a few months. Think about what it means to evangelize our children. And along the way, you know, when we talk about evangelizing our children, maybe we'll see what it means to be evangelized ourselves. I don't stand in front of you as somebody who has all this together. I have a 29-year-old daughter who's no longer at home. I have an 18-year-old son who's about to turn 19 in a few days. I have a 17-year-old still living in the house and a 13-year-old still living in the house. Y'all saw him yesterday painting faces. I don't have all the answers. I need to go through this information. I need this encouragement as much as all of you do. I'm attempting to do this. And I would say to you, sometimes I walk around failing, feeling just as miserable as you do. Oh, Pastor Weed, look at what happened. Look at what's going on in my life here. Look, yeah, me too, me too. So we need to be about the business of doing this. And sometimes we need to stop, and that's what we want to do today, stop and evaluate what what a covenant child looks like. What is our proper estimation to be of a covenant child? Now, some people overestimate their covenant children, their relationship to the Lord. Some parents believe that once they've come and brought their children in front of the congregation for baptism, they believe they've done their bit and there's nothing else left for them to do. The preacher will evangelize them. The Sunday school teacher, and Lord willing, maybe one day we'll have a Sunday school. The Sunday school teacher will evangelize them. I am free. I am clear. I've done my bit. 
But folks, listen, remember what we said a few weeks ago? Remember, listen to this. Let's, Let's put some numbers on this. Let's say, let's just say that you come in the morning for an hour, you come in the evening on Sunday for an hour, what now? My math. I'm, I'm. My skills. I used to be. I used to think I was pretty good at math, but I still remember that two times fifty-two is one hundred four. A hundred and four hours a year, and there's how many hours in a year? Eight thousand seven hundred and thirty-six hours in a year. One hundred four divided by eight seven three six is one percent. One percent, if your kid comes in the morning and the evening for one hour each time, one percent of their time would be at church. What about the other 99 percent? You're responsible for the other 99 percent if you gave it all to the preacher. Two hours a week. 99% of our time is with our children. And let us not make this mistake to think that the preacher can do it all. Or that the Sunday school teacher can do it all. You and I, we have to be part of this thing, not overestimating that this will take care of it. I have seen evangelistic parents in my life. Let me tell you about some evangelistic parents. You know, I used to be a personal trainer. And so I used to uh, meet with this group of kids. (laughs) At uh, on Thursday, yeah, I'm gonna have to get my. I'm getting warm. Um, I meet on Thursday at four o'clock right across the street. Went to Rice Elementary School, and all and, and, and immediately all these cars would come in and they'd dump kids off, and they all get out. All of these little fourth, fifth, sixth grade kids, they all get out, and I run this run the snot out of them. I just run them to death for an hour, doing squats and doing lunges and doing starts and. and teaching them how to do all the sprint, all the A drills, and all the different drills you do. And at 5 o'clock, all the parents show back up. And they all get into the cars, all these really, really nice Suburbans, and they go to Dallas, Texas, and they go to club soccer. And they do club soccer that's 5 o'clock to 6.30. 6.30, club soccer starts. It goes till 8 o'clock. 8 o'clock, they get back in the cars. They come back home. They've had all these. They've had to work out with the greatest trainer in the world. And then they went and worked out with with the teams in Dallas. Y'all have to tell me, I'll have to tell you a story about the greatest trainer in the world sometime. And then they come home. Now, what's this for? What's this for? Soccer. What's this for? This is soccer evangelism. This is unbelievable evangelism. All for soccer. And I'm arguing with you today, what about your child's immortal soul? What's more important than that? You know, we need to be really careful about all this sports stuff sometimes. I'm going to say something that crushes me to say this. It really crushes me. I was so given to baseball. How many times have I thrown a baseball since I was 18? That's painful. All these kids I trained, all these guys that did all this soccer, you know what happened to most of these kids I trained? They stopped playing soccer when they were in the 11th grade. They were so tired of it. But think about all the energy. Think about all the diligence to be the best we can be in soccer. And we need to put the same energy into training our children to be Christians, to teach them about Jesus Christ. Some parents overestimate their child's covenant relationship to the Lord by seeing it as as replacement for regeneration and 
Conversion. Let me, let me explain that for a second. If I just get my children to know the right doctrine, and if I just get my children doing the right behavior, then that replaces their need to hear about repenting and believing. We just They know the truth. They know how to explain the truth. They know how to act the right way. They behave a little bit better than most. And so this replaces the, regener- you know, the uh, being born again, what it means to be born again. And we must remember that we ourselves and our children are conceived and born in sin. We must remember that they and we ourselves are subject to condemnation and judgment. We need a Savior and so do they. We need to be born again and so do they. And so we must always be about this business, and this kind of bothers some people, but we must always be about this business, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, of testing ourselves to see if we're in the faith. We can't just walk around, I'm in it, I'm in. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, what do we do? We examine ourselves. We examine ourselves for new obedience, for new faith, For new repentance, we examine ourselves to see, am I walking with God? We cannot substitute for being born again and regeneration. We cannot substitute right doctrine and right behavior and think all is well. What happens when we do this is we produce unbelievably great Pharisees. If all you think about is, I got my doctrine down and I've got behavior down, then we can be some of the greatest Pharisees the world has seen. You know what Pharisees are, don't you? Pharisees are in the right place. They're in the right place at the right time. They're there for the right length of time and they do the right thing. They're very into knowing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. They like the water to be sprinkled on them. They want all the right things done to them. And if you go look in the Bible and look at what the Pharisees were all about, they were all about being down at the front of the church. They were all about being circumcised. They were all about praying in front of everybody so everybody could see them. They were all about all the stuff given in front of people so everybody would clap. But Jesus said the person that walks away justified was the guy in the back beating on his breast and saying, I'm a sinner. The persons who who had the broken heart. It's the scariest thing to think that people can be so doctrinally correct, so full of the right behavior in so many ways, and their hearts be far from God. We don't want that in our own lives. The Pharisees said, we are the seed of Abraham, and yet when the seed of Abraham came on the scene, they didn't know him. The final one, Jesus Christ. Second, some of our friends underestimate a covenant child's relationship to the Lord. Underestimate. Now, this is where some of my Baptist friends and I have a conversation. I would say that my Baptist friends underestimate a child's relationship to the Lord of a believing parent or believing parents. Once you leave the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the child, the child has a standing. The child is peculiar. The child is set apart. But when you move into the New Testament, some of my Baptist friends, they say, no, this relationship doesn't continue in the New Testament. And the implication is this. The Old Testament children had a covenantal status. But when you pass to the New Testament, it does not continue. Now, this is where we disagree. And we can agree to disagree. 
But we have established in our studies in the past that in both Testaments we see a relationship with God, the child's relationship with God because of the parent's belief and the child's relationship with God in the New Testament because of the parent's belief. In Genesis 17, 17, and I'm not going to go through all these passages again, but I'm going to make a few comments. In Genesis 17, 17, it says, God says to Abraham, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Now, you know, one of the things that when I first went to my first Presbyterian church, because I was a Reformed Baptist, I went to my first Presbyterian church, and Pastor Johnson gave me four books on infant baptism, and he gave them to me, and he smiled, and he said, read these. And so I decided I would read the, the, the text in the Bible. And the first text I read was Genesis 17, and it was this verse that I read. And his, here are the words that, that I, I got stuck on. I will establish... Abraham, my covenant as an everlasting covenant, stop. I couldn't move from after that. What's that mean? Everlasting. It means that what's going on now is going to go on forever. And I was going, "Mm, I'm stuck now. I'm stuck now. Jesus in Luke 18, 15 and 16, Jesus receives the children of believing parents. He welcomes them. Acts 2, 38 and 39, the the Apostle Peter says, The promise of the Holy Spirit is for you and for your children. So God has sovereignly and graciously established a redemptive relationship with the believer and his seed. And we find it unimaginable that it doesn't continue in the New Testament. We see, we believe that it does. Think about those words, everlasting. Everlasting covenant. I would also say that I haven't met very many people, I think I have, but there are churches and there are parents who overemphasize certain things and they forget other things. They have better doctrine than they practice. There are ministers and there are parents, listen, who get so excited about what happens up here. They get so excited about the vows. They get so excited about the water. They get so excited about doing the stuff in front of people. They get so excited. The pictures are going to get taken right afterwards. The pictures. And then there's going to be cake and there's going to be this celebration. They get so excited about all of those things. And then they forget. Forget what it's all about. You know, this past week, and I'm going to say this to you. It's not in the sermon, but... You know, we serve the Lord's Supper pretty regularly, and I've been reading some old sermons. And You know, one of the things you can do for your quiet time is you read a little bit of Scripture, and you pray, and you move along. So I've been reading a book on by Robert Bruce in the 1500s. It's really good on the Lord's Supper. And he says, you know what the Lord's Supper is all about? You know what the sacraments are all about? They're, they're meant to stir you up. What is, part of this worship service, what's the preacher supposed to do? Listen, part of the thing the preacher's supposed to do is stir you up. I'm going to do it. I'm going to give it all I've got. I'm going to stir you up. I don't want you to walk out of here. I want you stirred up. Just like the Lord's Supper stirs us up. And this thing's supposed to stir us up. Not to, not to walk out and say, hey, I had a great party. I crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's. 
Well, let's think about what's a proper estimation of our covenant child's relationship to the Lord. Number one, we properly estimate our covenant child's relationship to the Lord when we realize our child must be born again. The first vow we make when we baptize a child is this. We acknowledge that our children are conceived and born in sin. And they are therefore subject to condemnation. Now there it is. Why do we need to be born again? Because we're conceived and born in sin and subject to condemnation. Baptism is not enough. Not. So you go to John chapter 3 and Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is there in front of Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, you must be born again. Well, you mean I've got to crawl back up in my mother's womb and be born all over again? No, it's not physical. This is something spiritual. This is something that spiritually takes place. And so he he talks to him more. He says, you must be born of water in the Spirit. And being born of water, it means that you need to be cleansed. The Spirit of God must cleanse away your sin. And the Spirit of God must renew you on the inside, recreating you, cleansing and changing, cleansing and changing. Born, listen, from above, born from the top to the bottom, born by the power of the Holy Spirit who blows where He wills. We need to tell our children that they need to be born from above and we need to see them and pray for these things to happen so that they might see the kingdom of God and they might enter into it. We must pray for the broken heart to to be sorry over sins and to see that they're forgiven of their sins. Well, let's move on. We properly estimate our covenant child's relationship to the Lord when we direct them to look to Jesus Christ. You know... um, Let me make sure. I I brought my Bible with small print, but let me just read a few things to you. Listen, Listen to this. Lift up your eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? Your help's not going to come from looking inside your heart. Your help's not going to come from looking at a person on the earth. Your help's going to come from looking to the Lord. How many places in the Bible does it tell us to look to Jesus Christ for our salvation? How many places does it say? Back in the Old Testament, there's that story when all the people are being bit by the serpents and Moses is being called upon by the people, help us. And so he goes to the Lord and the Lord tells him to make a serpent, put it on the pole and put it up in front of everybody and says, look to the serpent and you won't die from the snake bites. That's pretty weird. You mean you're going to be saved if you look at a snake on a pole? (laughs) And Jesus tells Nicodemus that he's going to be saved if he looks at Jesus on the cross. That's a pretty bad looking picture of Jesus on the cross, right? Look to Christ. Look to what the water preaches. The water preaches the blood of Jesus Christ poured out for our sins. So we teach our children to look to Jesus Christ. We also estimate properly our covenant child's relationship to the Lord when we direct them to obey God from the heart. This is one that we all are going to have to work on. So if I'm born of God, cleansed and changed, how does that demonstrate itself? Well, we look to Christ by faith. And we are going to obey. Jesus says in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I like some of the terminology when we join the church. We talk about loving God and walking with Him devotionally according to His commandments. And so we teach our children 
that Jesus is Savior and Lord. We teach our children that they are to be living in holy sacrifices in their hearts and in their minds and in their souls. We may even sing a song, and maybe Ben will correct me here, but here's one of the songs we learn to sing, right? Oh, be careful, little hands, what you touch. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, little hands, little feet. But it's not just about what we don't do. It's also about what we do get to do. What does this mean for us fathers and mothers and grandfathers and uh, grandmothers? Well, it means that we have to be about the business, not just about vowing. But we have to be about the business of being holy ourselves. I have never... I think about all those coaches that I had growing up. I think about some of those guys. I think about their energy. I mean, I can remember my coach out there hitting ground balls and hitting balls in the sky and all these guys and all the energy. You have to have that energy with your children. You have to teach them. We've got, we've got a couple of men in our church who can take cars apart and put them back together like they're toys. Y'all know that? I want you to know how to teach your kids the gospel the same way you know how to take a car apart and put it back together. I want you to teach your children not just to externally obey, but to in their hearts learn to obey. Now I know that maybe y'all all know the story about the little Quaker girl. Does everybody know? Everybody know the Quaker girl story? Well, I'm going to tell you again. I'm going to tell you again, okay? Maybe I can tell it with a little flair to make you laugh. So there's a little Quaker girl. She's standing up in her chair. And if any of our little girls were standing in their chair right now, Mom, what would you, what would you say? Sit down. <laughs> right? Sit down. We, we may not have a Quaker girl. But we would say to the little Quaker girl, sit down in your chair. A few minutes later, little Quaker girl looks at little Quaker mama and she says, Mom, I'm still standing up even though my rear end's sitting in this chair. And we all laugh, right? We kind of think that's funny. But what we have to teach our kids is that wanting and saying that kind of thing is just as sinful as standing in the chair. We want our kids' bodies to be conformed to obedience as well as their hearts to be conformed to obedience. We want them to do the right thing and we want them to do it with the right attitude in their hearts. And we have to teach them how to do this. And as parents, I think one of the best ways to do this is to tell on ourselves. How are you going to teach them? Tell your children that you're dealing with this yourself. I remember one day my son was with me in California and something happened right in front of him. He watched it. He watched somebody say things to me they should not have said. He watched me perfect handle it. Perfect. Perfect. He said, how'd you do that? I said, it was God's grace. A few weeks later, I told him, I said, now let me talk to you about that incident again. He said, okay, yeah, I mean, you, just, you were just, you were superb. You were so great. I said, oh, yeah. I said, but three days ago when I was in my office, I started thinking about that and I got so full of rage. I got angry about it. 
And I don't think God was pleased with my attitude in my heart. And I know that you didn't see it. And I know that God did. And I asked God to forgive me. And I want you to know that your dad's in the, in the game too. He wants his body to be conformed outwardly and inwardly as well. This is what we call getting real with our children. We want our hearts to be sanctified as well. Well, fourth, we properly estimate our covenant child's relationship to the Lord when we teach our children according to God's Word. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, 1 and 4, he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. This means that we're going to have to get our Bibles out and we are going to, you know, I know, listen, I, I think one of the most enjoyable things in my entire life is to know just exactly the buttons to push in my wife's life to make her get just a little bit annoyed with me. <laughs> you know, she knows it. She can push my buttons too. But we can't do that. I mean, that's for fun. We can't do it with our kids unless they know what we're doing. But we take the Word of God to our kids. And one of the things we talked about earlier is you can get the shorter catechism. You say, Pastor Weed, I don't know what to talk about. Well, just get the, get the Bible out and just start reading it. You don't have to. You know way more than the four, three-year-old knows. I don't know anything. Oh, yeah, you know way more than a five-year-old knows. You do. You've learned a few things. And you go through the shorter catechism. It tells you what God requires. It tells you what God prohibits. Talk about those things. Move to the next thing. You don't have to. You don't have to give a tome on it. You just move along. And so here we have these coaches. These coaches they come along and they teach us the basics. I used to have all these kids that would come up and guess what they would say to me? It's Friday. It's time to go to a ball game. And they would all say to me, they weren't on the football team. They'd say, Pat, uh, Mr. Wheat, Mr. Wheat, I need to do biceps today. I need to do biceps today before, you know, all, I need to do biceps for one solid hour during the workout because I want to make sure that the girls see my big old biceps. <laughs> and I say, you're more than a bicep. You're a person. And I'm going to train you from the top of your head to all the way to your toes. I'm going to train every muscle in your entire body. I'm like, you're so tired. So that you are not injured and you can come back next week and do this all over again. But at the end of the workout, I'll let you do some biceps. I mean, I'm a real person. But this is what we do. This is what we do with our kids. We want to get in their faces. We want to give them kisses. We want to push them. Make promises to them. Admonish them. Get right there in their eyes. We want to tell them what the Bible says. We want to help them understand it. When they ask a question again and again and again, we're going to say, here's the answer again and again and again. We're not going to be impatient. We're going to be long-suffering. We're going to be real patient. This is what we do. You know, I don't know that I'm any more ashamed of myself than this. When I've been so patient with everybody else, I'm so patient with everybody else on the phone. I'm so patient with everything else. And I come home and I'm impatient with these people right here. That's when I'm most ashamed of myself. We've got to be patient. Well, finally, in conclusion, believing parents should be encouraged knowing that God ordinarily works savingly among his covenant community. Maybe I ought to read that again. God savingly works among His covenant community. 
It's a great thing to go out and knock on 1,600 doors or however many. It's a great thing to go pass out information. It's a great thing to invite people to church. It's a great thing when somebody comes to know the Lord in vacation Bible school. It's a great thing to, to talk to our neighbors. But, you know, it's wonderful to see them come to Christ. But God ordinarily works in this covenant community. Why do you say why? Because this is where the Word of God is read and preached. This is where the word of God, this is where the sacraments are administered. This is where prayers are made. This is where the fellowship and the iron sharpening iron takes place, and you're here. God uses, He's ordained to use these means. Now, we have to say at the same time, God's not obligated to save anybody. Because God's sovereign. And so this is where we see the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man banging into each other. And according to God's sovereignty, He can save who He wills. We can preach and we can teach and we can model, but it's up to God to save. But for our parts, as I said to somebody this week, to the death, I'm not going to do anything but make sure I evangelize my family. Right? To the death, I've got to do this. I'm going to trust in this God the Bible teaches me about who's merciful and tender and kind and who loves to use His means of grace among our family members. And so we tell them. And God forbid that we evangelize the whole world and forget our family. God forbid that this church becomes a particularized church and we don't share the gospel with our little four-year-old. And so we preach. Why? Because wherever the Word of God is preached, hearts are transformed. Where there are no means of grace, there can be no salvation. If there's no Jonah in Nineveh, death. If there's no Jesus standing in front of the tomb and saying, Come forth, Lazarus, death. If there's no prophet in front of all those bones in that valley of dry bones, Ezekiel's valley of dry bones, death. The Ethiopian eunuch without Philip's preaching, he's dead. Lydia, dead. The jailer, dead, without the preaching of the Apostle Paul. But when the Word of God is going forth, there's life, friends. There's life in Nineveh. There's life in that valley of dry bones. There's life. That heart of Lydia is opened up by the power of God. There's life to young boys. There's life to young girls. There's life to mom and dads. And so you and I are to be encouraged to preach the gospel to ourselves and to our children. And to trust that all, listen to me, feeble. (laughs) Don't you feel feeble? Oh, man. Do I sometimes, I don't even know what I'm doing. God help me, I don't even know if I'm doing the right thing. You know, that's how we feel. We ask God to use our feeble efforts to draw our children safely into His barn. And so we need to encourage our children to pray for themselves, to pray to God the Father, to hold on to Jesus Christ in their arms and come to Him by the power of God's Spirit and plead that the water that's been poured on their head would be washing them, preaching the washing of Jesus' blood to cleanse away their sins. I wrote this prayer. O Lord Jesus, I thank You for giving me to believing parents. 
I thank you for their obedience to bring me for the waters of baptism and to mark me off as one of your children, to be raised in a Christian home and in this church. And now, O Lord, I look to you for your grace, that by your Spirit you may grant to me a new heart, that I might live for the Lord Jesus Christ all the days of my life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be in your word. And we do pray, Father, that we would be those uh, adults and young people who are stirred up by this time of worship. And Father, we pray that you would, would help us to be those coaches that we see all around us who are so full of enthusiasm for what they do. Lord, help us to be enthusiastic about the things of God. Help us. And help our hearts, Lord, that we might be those, even when when times seem to be so dull, Lord, that we might be stirring ourselves up, stirring each other up to walk, not in compromised ways, but, Lord, in truly committed ways to bring glory and honor to you. Help us to love our children into the kingdom of God, we pray, as we've just heard, that you would use our feeble means to to that end. We thank you for this time together. We ask, Lord, that you will help us finish with our singing and with our benediction. To your glory, honor, and praise, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.